us. It's about you and about your glory and how you display your glory through the church. We're thankful for this uh, institution that you have established and that has been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And we want to honor this institution, uh, but more importantly, we want to honor your name. So help us to do that as we think about our role and our responsibility in it and, and our advancement of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, that's really small. Um, all right, so last week we talked about defining the church, that, that, that we need to have a starting point um, uh, of a definition of what the church is. And, and one of the things that we noticed from the biblical narrative is that God's intention for the church is to cre- create a people for himself who would display his glory that God, remember, throughout history has displayed his glory in a number of different ways, but, but the primary way in which he displays his glory in this age is through the church. And we know that because of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that, that God has made this mystery known, this mystery that was previously hidden from the Gentiles has now been made known that God has brought these two groups together um, to display God's greatness. And so uh, the church is not an option. It's the central part of what God is doing in the world. It, it is to display His glory. So we don't just say, well, you know, you can be a Christian and then just kind of live however you want. No, the, and, you know, the church doesn't matter uh, as much as long as you're, you're um, focusing on your individual Christian life. Um, the church is actually the central part of what God is doing in the world. And so turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. Because we want to see what happens when those who claim to represent God's name or Christ's name fail to do so. First Corinthians chapter 15. Sorry, chapter 5. <laughs> First Corinthians 5, sorry. What does it say in the handout? Okay, yeah. Sorry about that. First Corinthians chapter 5. All right, verse number 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, With the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So what's going on here? If we want to just say what the topic of this conversation is, what, what is the topic? Okay, immorality in the church. That a man, at the end of verse uh, 1, is, is sleeping with his father's wife. And 
If we want to expand on that, we see that the congregation is tolerating it. Uh, verse 2, he says, You, that is you, congregation, have become arrogant. and You haven't mourned about it. Instead, you've, you've condoned it. And um, one second here. So, so what does Paul expect them to do? According to verse 5. Okay, verse 5 says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan. So Paul's saying, I've already judged what should happen here. You need to follow my lead here. And, and what is the ultimate goal in this? Why, why cleanse the church? Why remove this person who is sinning from their midst? Is it for his destruction so that he will be destroyed? What does it say there at the end of verse 5? So that... The spirit may be sa- so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this is actually uh, going to be used as a means to wake him up to the reality of his sin. So Paul's calling on them to um, to remove him, to hand him over to Satan, to remove him out of this realm where he feels comfortable about his relationship with God, and move him into a realm where he will feel uncomfortable with his relationship with God. And as a result, that hopefully will revive his spirit that his spirit will be saved and so paul calls on believers in corinth to to remove this man but the question that comes up for our focus today is to remove him from what he just gave the answer to the the big question i was asking for the whole class now we don't even have to have the rest of the class that was rhetorical but uh or uh but that's okay he got it right um remove him from the church um, that's what we want to clarify this morning. And, and the answer is, um, as Paul said, church membership. We can't, we can't remove somebody from something that they're not a part of, right? And so if someone comes in, visits our church, and um, you know, they commit some kind of immorality and, and we want to remove them, well, what are you going to remove, remove them from? Remove them from attendance? Um, I, I don't think so. And, and the, church, the, the, the scriptures assume that when a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that they are baptized and then added to the church. They're added to some kind of list. In fact, there are lists of people who are parts of the church. Like um, Paul talks about having a list of widows. Well, well, he, he, in, in that, there's an assumption that they're a part of their church. And so, um, so there seems to be a formal way to keep track of who's in and who's out. So I think that the church membership is necessary. It is important that it is critical to the life of each of us as believers. In order to see this, we need to see why the church exists. Why does the church exist? All right, let's turn over to Matthew 16. See the first time that the word church is used here, Matthew 16. In the first part of the chapter, Jesus is warning his apostles not to trust the teaching of Israel's leaders. In verses 1 through 12, they were self-righteous, and, and so they, their, their proud self-reliance blinded them from seeing who Jesus really was. And so just, then Jesus turns to Peter and says in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And remember, Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms his answer, and then he says this in verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, heaven, excuse me, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is the first of two times that Jesus talks about the church in the Gospels, and, and notice how he connects the church, verse 18, to the kingdom in verse 19. He says in verse 18, I will build my church, and then verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, last week we talked about only believers will enter the kingdom of God, right? That's what John 3 says, um, unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, no, no one who's born of the flesh can enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. And, and so only believers will enter the kingdom of God. And so what we should recognize here is something that's very important. That is that the church is a subset of Christ's future kingdom. So if you think about the future kingdom and all that it contains, there will be other believers in the kingdom that are outside the church, right? You have the Old Testament saints that will be a part of the kingdom. You have the millennials, the, the excuse me, the um, tribulation saints will be a part of the kingdom. You have people who are saved during the millennium who will be part of the kingdom. And, and then you have the church. So from Acts 2 all the way till the rapture, that's the church. That's a subset of Christ's future kingdom. And so what's the connection between this kingdom of heaven that's future that Jesus talks about in verse 19 and the church today in verse 18? And the answer is that the church is meant to display on earth who's in and who's out. So who's actually a part of the kingdom and who's not a part of the kingdom? So uh, what we want to do as a church is we want to make sure that, that the church is made up peop of people that is, the membership of the church is made up of people who are part of Christ's future kingdom. Specifically, when Jesus talks to Peter, he's interested in what and who. He, he wants to be clear what a right confession is and who a right confessor is. So what's the right confession, and then who is the one who, who, who makes that confession? Jesus exercises this authority, but then goes a step further, and he actually gives Peter and the apostles the same authority. The, the authority to stand in front of a person who's confessing faith in Jesus Christ, to actually hear that confession, confirm it, and then decide whether it's official or not. And, and, then, and then make a judgment. We think that this person is a part of Christ's future kingdom. We think that this person is making a proper confession of faith based on what we have been handed, handed down from us, uh, what, what has been handed down from us from Jesus Christ. That's what the apostles are saying. We, we are going to be the ones who, who determine if this is a right confession and if this is a right confessor. And I want, to, I want to make sure you get this because whoever is holding these keys of the kingdom has heaven's authority. They have heaven's authority. Now, not to make a Christian. We don't, as a church, okay, I'm going to argue that the church actually has been handed those keys, but, but Peter and the apostles don't have the authority to make a Christian, but they have a, a, the authority to declare who is a Christian. And do you know how they do that? Do you know how the church does that now that we have the keys? We do that through the baptism and the Lord's Supper. The baptism is the front door. The Lord's Supper is, is kind of the, to make sure who's in and who's out. Okay, the, the, as we, as we um, 
are baptized, we're saying this person is making a proper confession of faith. We're affirming it by allowing them to be baptized. And then we're allowing them to join into the church. So in Matthew 16, the apostles are said to hold the keys. But then notice in Matthew 18 that Jesus puts the keys into someone else's hands. And that is the, the, the local church. Chapter 18 in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. I'm in verse 17 now. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, then notice this phrase, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loose in heaven. Does that sound familiar? Okay, it should, because chapter 16, verse 19 is exactly the same, it uses the same language to describe what Peter was supposed to do with the keys. You have the keys to the kingdom. That means whatever you bind on earth, you sh- shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same thing for the church now. The church now has those keys, is what he's saying. So when a man has been confronted a couple of times over a sin and he doesn't listen, in verse 17, Jesus says to tell it to whom? In chapter 18. Not to the pastor, not to a committee, not to a session or a presbytery, but to whom? To the church. Okay, so after they've been confronted a couple of times, I just clarify what I asked there. After he's been confronted a couple of times, verse 17, then, he, then you tell it to the church. In other words, the final court of appeal is the church. So listen to this. The local church has heaven's authority to guard what and the, the what and the who of the gospel. That is, the local church has the authority to determine what it is that represents heaven and who it is that's a representative of heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that we, on our own authority, we, we come up with all, all of our own things. All of our authority comes from Christ. He's handed that down to us. But we are actually the ones who affirm we are, let's say, um, we are God's hands or Christ's hands here on the earth. To say, hey, hey this person is in or this person is out. We hold the keys in that way. What, what are the purpose of keys? The purpose of keys is to unlock or lock something. Or in other words, verse 18, right, to bind and to loose. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's authorizing the local church to stand in front of a person who makes a profession of faith, a confessor, and to consider this confession, consider his or her life, and then to announce an official judgment on behalf of heaven. And, and what the church is seeking to do is to say, is this the right confession and th- is this a true confessor? The what and the who. Does this match up with the, what the scriptures say a right confession is? Okay, that's the what. And then does this person, is, is this person a right confessor? Is this person a part of Christ's future kingdom? And just like Jesus did with Peter. All right, let me, let me move on to this next one here, and then I'll see if you have questions. All right, the keys are exercised through baptism and the Lord's Supper. We, the church, 
bind and loose. We exercise the keys through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. Notice verse 20 of Matthew 18. For where, well, let's just look at verse 19 so we get, get the context here. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, I'm sure if you've been around church for a long time, um, then you've probably heard this preached or, or talked about as if this is talking about prayer. This is not talking about prayer. Okay, in the context, Jesus is talking about the keys to the kingdom and about binding and loosing. Whatsoever is bound on earth ought to be bound in heaven. Okay? And so what he's saying here is that when two or three of you come together and look at a confession of faith and you agree on it, then, then it, it shall be done. Look at the end of verse, 18, verse 19. It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 20, where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in your midst. And so Jesus here is explaining this key-holding activity. That's why he says four in verse 20. He begins the, the verse there with four. And so what does this mean, to be gathered in his name in verse 20? And I think what Jesus is talking about is what he's talking about in Matthew 28, where he, he just before he ascends into heaven, he says, all authority has been on heaven and earth has been given to me, and so you go, therefore, and make disciples. I have this authority. I'm delegating that authority to you. That is, you are my hands and feet. You are my mouth. And so you do the baptizing. I'm not doing the baptizing. Okay? You do the baptizing. You, you bring them into the church. And so in that sense, the church, because it has the authority of the keys, has the authority to baptize. Right? It's not Christ who comes down and comes bodily and baptizes believers. He's saying, I'm passing on the authority to you. So you need to determine who should be rightly baptized. Okay, that's what I'm saying about the front door. We need to guard the front door of the church, and that's, we, we do that with these keys that have been handed to us by Christ. Baptism is a symbol of spiritual uh, uh, of saving spiritual reality, right? A picture of our union with Christ. We're saying when we baptize someone, we're saying that, yes, you have identified yourself with Christ. That person's saying that. I've identified myself with Christ, and we're affirming that by allowing them to be baptized. Let me just try to give you an example to, to help you here. Uh, suppose someone came into our church, and they were living in sin of some kind, and they said, I've made a profession of faith, and I want to be, I want to be baptized. Okay, we'll, we'll be happy to do that. We want to, make, want to make sure that you understand what baptism is. We take them through uh, that. And, and during this period of time, let's say it's a couple weeks, we see that they haven't turned from their sin, and, and we ask them a little bit more carefully about you know, what, what they're doing and, and when they made this profession of faith, and they're unwilling to repent of their sin. Well, what are we saying if we just go, go through with the baptism anyway? Right? What are we saying about them? We affirm that you are a believer. That's what we're saying when we baptize them. That's why I'm saying it's the, it's the holding of the keys. It's the using of the keys. We're, we are binding on earth what God is binding in heaven. By saying, you can be baptized. We are affirming your profession of faith. And so baptism is that front door, so to speak. How many times is baptism performed on a person, typically? Okay, one, rightly, once. On the other hand, the Lord's Supper is done regularly. 
And so the, in these two gospel displays, we're, we're drawing boundary lines of who's in and who's out. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, yes, when you join with us in the Lord's Supper, you are, you are a part of us. You're a part of Christ. Remember Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, when someone claims the name of Christ but refuses to let go of their sin, then their claim loses credibility and the church is called to remove that, their affirmation, right? That's what Paul's saying. Stop taking the Lord's Supper with this guy. You need to remove them from the church. He's not allowed to take it with you anymore. You need to determine that because he's not a representative of Christ's kingdom. Now, let me be clear, we're not unsaving them. Right? We're not, when we say you're not, no longer a member of our church through church discipline, we're not saying you're, you're no longer a Christian necessarily. We're not causing them to lose their salvation. We're simply making an evaluation that based on how you are living right now, we can no longer affirm that you are a Christian. Now, we've removed people from our church um, even in the last seven years since I've been here, and um, some for for sin, some just for moving to a different place and they just never locked into another church. What we are saying about both of those situations is not, you are not a Christian, but you're not living like a Christian. Okay, The, the one who, who, were, was, who was disciplined out of our church because of immorality was approached, according to Matthew 18, and then still was unwilling to repent. And what we're saying about that person is not, you're not a Christian, although that may be true. But based on the way that you're living, that's not how Christians live. Okay? And, and we can't identify ourselves with someone who's unrepentant in their sin. Because you're, you are representing Christ. And, and in doing so, we wanted to hand him over to the kingdom of Satan, outside of the kingdom of Christ, right, which is represented through the church, hand him over to the kingdom of Satan so that he realizes, hey, this is serious stuff. I mean, the, the church doesn't affirm that I'm a Christian. I should be questioning my salvation at this point. And, and, and our prayer, hopefully you still pray for him to this day, is that, is that he will have his spirit saved on the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so that's what the Lord's Supper does. You know, if he were to show up and say, I want to take the Lord's Supper, we'd say, no, you can't. Okay, we can't affirm your salvation. And so what we do there is we excommunion them, right? Excommunicate, you've heard that word? And the, I think the Catholic Church kind of hijacked that word and used it, I think, to put a negative connotation on it, but that's actually what we're doing. We're taking and excommunioning them from our church. They can't take part of the Lord's Supper. They can't be a part of our fellowship in the same way that they were before. Now, we certainly, we welcome them back. If you wanted to come in, you know, listen to our services, great. Listen to the preaching of God's word. Be encouraged and, and challenged by believers, great. But he can't, he can't be in fellowship with us in the same way that he was before. Now, this, is, this can be tough, but it's important that the church follow scripture on this because the church is called to represent God, to image God. The glory of God is supremely important. And if we fail on this, what we've done is we've blurred the line of distinction between who's in and who's out. And now what we've said is, to, to ourselves and to a watching world, it doesn't really matter how you live, right? You know, we just want people to feel good. We want them to feel good about their salvation. And, and I would say to you, yes, we do. 
but no, we don't. Okay, ultimately, we want to, to make sure that they're saved. And if that means that we have to remove them and make a clear line of distinction between who's in and who's out, then we will do so. We want to image God here. And um, it's not primarily about flattering people in the church because this flattery, while appealing, is actually a form of deception, isn't it? It's, it's a form of deception to the individual that, you, you know, it's okay, right? First Corinthians 5, it, you know, we, we don't want this guy to feel bad, so we'll kind of just flatter him, you know, you're a Christian, you made the profession of faith. No, it's not about that because we've, we've actually deceived him about his own spiritual condition. We've also deceived the rest of the church about what it's right to live holily and righteously, if holily is a word, okay? Um, because they watch, right? Other members watch a sinning, unrepentant brother we're allowing him to be remain in as the church, and we're, and we're like, well, I guess I can live this way then. I can do this kind of sin. And the watching world is watching the same thing. They're watching this guy outside living like an unbeliever. Oh, you're a member and ambassador? Oh, really? Oh, then I must be okay spiritually because I live just like you. And, and members of ambassador are Christians, right? Oh, great, then I'm a Christian. See, what we've done is we've deceived the person, our congregation. We've deceived the watching world. And in so doing, we've actually misrepresented Christ and his church because we failed to draw the line of distinctions between who's in and who's out. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper are really these, how we use the keys that have been handed to us by Christ. That we profess Christ and we affirm one another as Christians and um, we work together to constitute a local church and its members. And Jesus authorizes us to use this. Do you remember the definition of the local church we talked about last week? Listen to this. It is, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name. It's not about a building primarily, but about, about a, a, a gathering. So who regularly gather in Christ's name. And then here's the next part. To officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and in his future kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So what is our responsibility? We, we gather together to affirm one another's profession of faith or to, perform, uh, to affirm and oversee one another's membership into Jesus Christ and his future kingdom, and we do it through the ordinances and through preaching. That's how we do it. So that's how we're using the, the keys. That's what I've been trying to explain this morning. Now, a few things are coming into to better focus, hopefully. Um, the reason that it's official is only because the church has been granted the authority of the keys, not an individual hasn't been given the keys. Okay, so when I say we, I'm not saying me and the deacons or just me. You know, kind of the, the uh, what is it, the narrative we, I'm not sure how it, but anyway, it's, it's not me. Okay, it's we as a church. We as a church officially affirm and oversee one another's membership into Christ's future kingdom. That's our responsibility. That's why I don't say, hey, you who is living in sin, you're out. I don't say that. Okay, you do it. In fact, you can go through all the steps of Matthew 18 on your own, except for taking it to the church. You don't have to have me involved in the process. In fact, I could be the recipient of that, right? of that process where you could come to me about an unrepentant sin and I not repent and then you take two or three and then you take it to the church and you could you could and should remove me when I'm living in unrepentant sin right so it's not about me it's not about you know who who I thinks in and who I thinks out it's about who the church thinks is in 
and who the church thinks is out. And in this way, we display the gospel. Friends, if we blur the line of distinction between who is in and who is out, it will be harder for us to live holy lives. It will be harder for the watching world to see what a true church ought to look like. It will be hard for them to see why they even need to change at all. And, and so this, I think, is, is critical, that we have a church membership, which we do, and that we, we, uh, we work to encourage one another and make sure that we're on the path towards greater holiness and purer doctrine. We do that through the baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's, those are the, how we draw those boundary lines. All right. I've said a lot. Now it's your turn. Thoughts, comments, concerns, questions. All right. I don't know if I can, but I'll give it a shot. I've come through it several times, and I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I'm sorry. I should have looked it up before. Any idea what it says? In First Corinthians 11. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Chapter 11. Yeah, 31 and 32. Mm-hmm. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Um. Well, in the context. Paul is talking about eating and drinking worthily, that some of you are coming to the Lord's Supper drunk and um, not waiting for everyone else, kind of just more concerned about yourself. And so as a result of your sin, verse 30, some of you are sick and some are dead. And if you took care of properly, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here because I I haven't studied this passage very carefully, but... um, if you had taken care of the sin yourself, then Christ wouldn't have to had he he wouldn't have had to do what what he did, which I think is verse thirty. Some of you are sick and some are asleep. Um, yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah, it could be. Um, I'm less inclined to think that way, but um, and I've heard that I've heard of that interpretation as well. But um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't really have a good answer for you there, Bill. That's my best attempt. What's the question? Let, let me move on here because uh, we don't have time for a discussion on on an, another topic. We can get to that another time. All right. Who is church membership for? Now, all this talk about the keys and the binding and loosing rep- 
raises an important question. What are the biblical criteria for getting in? And that's important because um, we're talking about more than just fitting in, right? It, we're talking about a matter of eternity. Who's a part of Christ's future kingdom? So um, is it like a country club where you just need to know the right people and you know just make friends with the right kind of people, drive a certain kind of car? Is it like the military where you need to be able to do a certain number of push-ups or pull-ups? Um, let's turn to chapter 5 here, Matthew 5, 3. I'm going to read these passages. and Someone read that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, so the question is, who is it that enters into the kingdom of heaven? And we made the connection in Matthew uh, 15 that, that the, those who enter the kingdom of heaven ought to be the same people that are, that are part of Christ's church. And so what we're seeing here is, who is it that enters in the kingdom? Here it's the poor in spirit, chapter 7, verse 21. Someone read that. Chapter 7, verse 21, sorry. So who enters the kingdom here? Those who do the Father's will. So the poor in spirit, those who do the Father's will. Chapter 10, verse 32. Would someone read that? All right, so those who confess... Christ, chapter 18, verse 4. So here's the, here are the people who are going to be a part of Christ's future kingdom and who also should be welcomed into the church. Here's the kind of people that we receive. The poor in spirit, those who follow God's will, chapter 7, those who acknowledge Christ, chapter 10, those who humble themselves like a child. So do you see a pattern here? That Christianity, by necessary correlation... It is not for the strong. Okay, Christianity and, by necessary correlation, church membership is not for the strong. It's not for those who have their act together. It's not for those who determine to just barge through and, and do their own wills, to do it their own way. Christianity, Christ's future kingdom, and therefore church membership today is for those who have tried and failed. It's for the teenager who who had certain moral ideas and then went off to college and fell into sin. It's for the mother who's tried really hard to be the perfect mother and disappointed herself. It's for the retiree who's reached the end of his career and looked back and realized, you know, it was all about me and my selfish, ambition, selfish ambitions. Now, what do I have? Christianity and church membership is for people who have reached the end of themselves. And that's why in chapter 9, Jesus says, it's not for the healthy, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but the but the sick. And I do not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous, but whom? I come to call the unrighteous or sinners, right? It's the sick, the sinners, the poor in spirit, the people who acknowledge their own sin. That the Heavenly Father has chosen unbelievably to represent Himself on earth, not with morally perfect and upright and people who are willing to be driven by their own wills, 
That's not who, Christ, who, who God decided to represent himself on the earth. He chose to represent himself with people who were morally broken. People who knew, who know that they are sinners and they hate it. And they want to turn from it and put their faith in the only one that can save them. In Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the heart of Christianity. We were created for good. We defied God in our sin. Christ lived a humble meek and perfect life that we should have lived and then he died on a cross to take to, to pay a penalty that we should have paid and now he calls everyone who's willing to acknowledge that fact those who are poor in spirit those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness those who are willing to turn away from their sins and follow him as savior that he will provide a means by which they will come to god All right, so what if after all this talk about the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosing, you still have questions about church membership? I mean, where is church membership really in the Bible? Give me a chapter and verse. Well, one helpful way to, to answer that question is to read through the New Testament with this question in mind. How does the Bible call Christians to relate to one another within the church? How does the Bible call Christians to relate within the church? And the answer is to one another. Love one another, Romans 15, 1. Um, let see, do I have these for you? Yes. Okay, so if you look on the bottom of the triangle there, your relationship with the congregation, Romans 12, 13 to 16 says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, bless those who persecute, persecute you. And, um, and it says in verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, not just please ourselves. So, so how is it that we engage within the context of the local church? Well, we do it by loving one another and providing for their needs and helping them. In chapter 10, Hebrews 10, there right below that, and let us consider one another how to stimulate one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. So, so we have this responsibility not to just go out to any Christians. You, you do have a responsibility to a Christian outside of this church. You know, maybe you have a brother who's a believer to encourage them in the faith. But you have a, a greater responsibility to people inside this church of which you have covenanted, with whom you've covenanted together to encourage them. Guard one another. First Corinthians 5, we already read that in Matthew 18, right? We have a responsibility to, to, to make sure these lines of distinction on our church membership match the lines of distinction on, on the Christ's future kingdom. And then uh, our responsibility to leaders, that there is oversight. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So uh, the, the elders have responsibility for oversight. You have responsibility to obey your elders. When I say elders there, I'm not talking about people older than you. Okay, I, I heard that growing up. That's not, that's not the point there. The elders here are talking about pastors, okay? Talking about the pastors in the church. They obviously need to show respect to elders. Um, but that's not the point of, of obeying your elders here in Hebrews 13. Uh, our, the, the responsibility that I have to the congregation is to equip and shepherd, and the responsibility of the congregation is to recognize. So we could look at all those verses. But, but what you're going to find throughout the New Testament is the way that we... The, the way that we relate with, with 
within the context of the local church is by doing these things to one another. Okay, so, so this raises a secondary question, which church? In other words, Hebrews 13 calls us to submit to our pastors or elders, but which elders? I mean, are we responsible to submit ourselves to every elder of every church? And the answer is no. I mean, uh, are, are elders accountable for the souls of every single believer? You know, am I a responsibility? Am I responsible for the soul of every single Christian in the world? No, I'm responsible for specific Christians, the ones within the context of this church. And the congregation has a responsibility to affirm the professions of faith and to remove and discipline when there's unrepentant sin of which individuals? My brother who lives out in Arizona, right? Or, or, or my, my nephew or, or, you know, whoever, some, some friend of mine that lives in another country. No, I don't have responsibility to affirm and to remove them from the church. Who is it? It's, it's people within the context of one local church. That's why you find that the New Testament is written to local churches. Okay, that, that when you see the, the um, recipients of the letters, primarily they're written to congregations, right? That, that 1 Corinthians 5, the passage we started with, was Paul talking to the congregation and saying, you need to remove him. I've already determined what you ought to do, but you haven't done it. Now do it. Remove him from your midst. Paul didn't have the authority to do it. He wasn't a part of that church. He was, he was trying to help them, but, but he actually was a member of the Antioch church. Antioch Baptist church, we'll say that. Probably not, but... Um, so all these commands here assume that, that this must take place not within the church universally, right? The universal church is all Christians from Pentecost to the rapture. That's not what it's talking about. Okay, so if we just say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need to be a member of a church. I don't need to go to church. I'll just listen to sermons online. Well, then I would ask you, well, then what, which elders are you going to obey? Okay, because you have a responsibility to obey your leaders, the ones who have been placed over you, and that's within the context of the church. Which Christians are you going to show love to? Right? How, how are you going to remove unbelievers when, when, when there's unrepentant sin? Where are you going to remove them from? If you're not a member of a church, you can't do any of those things. In other words, a lot of the commands in the New Testament are directed and only possible if you are a member of a local church. You can't say, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm not going to be a member of a church. I'll just, I'll just follow God and I'll be really holy on my own. Because you can't. You can't follow Christ's command apart. You can't follow Christ's command properly apart from a local church and so membership is simply a self-conscious commitment to other christians to decide listen i'm going to love i'm going to love them i'm going to encourage them i'm going to guard them i'm going to guard their lives both doctrinally and morally and, and i've chosen to do that with this specific body and and it's it's also a commitment to submit ourselves to the congregation to their oversight to the, to the leader's oversight and also to the accountability that comes from, from just being in the, the congregation of other believers. All right, so some of this is a little bit radical in the sense that, uh, you know, maybe you haven't thought about it in these terms, but, but can I just encourage you to... to Check the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true. 
Okay. Um, if you have questions, you know we still got four more weeks in this class. I'm not going anywhere even after this class is over. Okay. I'll be here for a long time, Lord willing. And um, so you can ask me questions along the way, or ask me questions during the week. I'll try to try to help you as best as I can. Um, the the best book that I can recommend that that um, helped me in, in my understanding of this is Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. It's a little blue book. It's a tiny little book. You get through it in probably a day, half a day, something like that. And, um, and he talks about these lines of distinction that we need to make and, and this connection between the church, the local church, and Christ's future kingdom. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about this morning as I was, um, as I was preparing, or reviewing, I should say, um, is that that our responsibility is to to do this well? So let me see if I can draw this. We talked about this yesterday at the membership class a little bit, but but you have um, you have the kingdom here, and what what Christ is not wanting is that we draw lines of distinction out here, where our church doesn't matter whether they have you know membership in this in Christ's future kingdom or not what what Christ is looking for is that our lines of distinction are the same so that in this this drawing really doesn't help it because what I'm going to say is that um, when you when you go outside of the church we're saying not that you've lost your salvation but we can't affirm that you're actually inside of this the reason that picture doesn't do well is because you're like, well, I could be all over, over here. Um, but, but the point is, is, when you're living in unrepentant sin, when I'm living in unrepentant sin, then I shouldn't have any assurance that I'm a part of this. And I think when we do this well, this is when God's honored. When our lines of distinction match the actual recipients or the actual members of the God, Christ's future kingdom, we do church well. We honor God well. When we start to fail on that, we start to get over here and, and maybe over here, this is where Revelation 2 and 3 comes in, where Jesus comes to the churches and says, listen, I stand among you. I'm the golden lampstand. I stand among you. But listen, if you don't, if you don't do this well, I'm going to snuff you out. Okay? You're, you're not a part. I, I, can't, I can't have you as my representative anymore if you're not doing what I gave you the keys to do. Right? When your dad gives you the keys, he expects you to do something with them. You're not doing them for what, what he wants. Then, then I can't give you the keys. Okay, so so we we need to stay on the path towards um, affirming one another's membership regularly. We don't just do this one time. That's why we have the Lord's Supper, right? Baptism is saying, yes, at this time, we're affirming your membership into Christ's future kingdom. Best as we can tell, we don't know, right? We're going to fail in this, aren't we? Because we're not perfect. We can't see the heart. But as best as we can tell, by your life and your profession of faith, what you've said, we think that you're a part of Christ's future kingdom. But that's not enough because we have to continually do that and evaluate one another as we walk through life and say, listen, is this person you know, continuing to show signs of, of being a believer? And, um, and as we do that, I think God is honored. Does that make sense? Okay. I won't ask you if you agree at this point because it might be something you need to think on and just go back to the scriptures and see if these texts match up with what I'm suggesting here, but um, but whatever the case, um, I'll be happy to, to answer any questions.
as you think of them. All right, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for this um, beautiful institution that you have provided. And Lord, we don't um, want to get to a place of, um, of pro- pride and um, a boasting in our own accomplishments and, and somehow follow after the, the model of the Catholic Church who speaks ex cathedra um, and, and thinks that they have uh, all this authority that, that uh, has been handed down to them through the popes. Lord, we, we genuinely do have authority that's been given to us by Jesus Christ at the end of his time here on the earth in Matthew 28. And, and that authority um, re- requires that we take very serial, seriously um, what we're doing here as a body of believers. And Lord, we, we don't like removing people. We don't like um, over-scrutinizing uh, it, it's it's uncomfortable. We don't like being over scrutinized, but but in in the end, um, Lord, we we want to be honoring to you and how we conduct ourselves within this church and how we represent your name. So, Lord, help us to do that better. Help us to to be regularly considering the members that we have at this church and and how we can better encourage them towards greater holiness and doctrinal purity. And and as we do. May your son be magnified and may more people be added to uh, the church and to your future kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe we should use a table or a line.